Good afternoon. I want to welcome everybody to the Cato Institute, both, of course, the people here in person, but also everybody who is watching online. I want to welcome you to our forum, Federal Policy, the Election, and the Changing Ivory Tower. Many of you were probably a little groggy because you were staying up really late watching election returns come in. Uh, and so congratulations on getting yourself here today. Uh, you can also join our conversation by using the Twitter hashtag uh, Cato Ivory Tower, if you want to talk about this on Twitter. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I'd like to, in addition to welcoming you today, introduce our moderator for today, uh, who will also likely be giving us lots of her own insights into many higher ed topics, uh, we'll be talking about for-profit schooling, competency-based education, and, of course, what last night's election results bode for higher education. And, and I really do hope she's going to, beyond keeping us all civil, uh, add lots of her own insights because she's extremely well qualified to do so. Uh, Amy Leitinen is the Deputy Director for Higher Education at the New America Foundation. Uh, prior to joining New America, she served as a policy advisor on higher education in the U.S. Department of Education and at the White House. Uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, named her one of the top 10 innovators of 2013 for her work on federal policy and competency-based education. Her current work focuses on federal policies to increase quality and transparency in higher education. And with that, over to you, Amy. So good morning. Uh, as Neil said, uh, you know, many of you are probably groggy. I know I'm groggy. I couldn't stop hitting refresh last night. I don't know how many other people were having that problem, but and then I woke up really early this morning. So apologies <coughs> if we seem, if even we seem groggier than normal. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, federal, what the elections mean for federal higher education policy. And I just want to do a short little bit of context setting, but these folks on the panel will really set the stage and take it away. So um, as probably everybody in this room knows, but just to underscore, uh, the non-traditional student really is the majority of the student today. Again, it's students who are going part-time, older students, students who are taking a mix of course types, whether or not they're taking fully online, fully in-person, competency-based courses at accredited institutions, or even taking courses or learning modules or learning experiences outside of traditional higher education providers, outside of institutions, outside of colleges and universities. We're seeing an increase in interest in badging and credentialing. And there's some talk on the Hill you know, interested in exploring that. We haven't seen a lot in that yet, but maybe we will in the new Congress. Um, and so all of that is interesting. All of this speaks to the, the needs that I think policymakers are really uh, struggling with, uh, to how to address the issues of cost and quality, affordability, and the need for completion in our economy. Um, and as we talk about meeting the needs of today's students, uh, and I think we're going to hear from all of these uh, folks about how to do that, I think we have to be really aware of this tension between this need to innovate, and I say this being somebody who has really been pushing on competency-based education and see myself as a champion of innovation and how to move innovation in higher education. But there is really a tension in federal policy between how to do that and how to protect students and taxpayers, because there's $150 billion in federal financial aid that is on the line um, with federal financial aid policy. And 
we've seen you know federal policy can do really good things and it can do really bad things and if we look at the rise of distance education i think you can see some good bad and ugly in that and i'm sure we'll talk about some of that today so the elections last night just talk about it really briefly but these folks will talk about it a little bit more obviously i think everyone expected the senate to to flip and for the house to deepen its majority i don't think anybody expected the sort of clobbering to be as intense as it was. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's pretty clear, you know, I think Chairman Klein is gonna keep his position and uh, Senator Alexander will, will take the helm of the help committee and will work with ranking member uh, Patty Murray. I think he's been, um, he's an interesting and uh, a person for this committee. I mean, a, certainly a well-prepared uh, member of the committee. He is a former, um, president of an institution and former secretary of education. So clearly has a lot of experience both on the federal policy side and the institutional side. It's pretty clear what uh, this Congress, the Repub now Republican Congress doesn't like, and that's regulation. Um, and it will be interesting to see what they do like. And so with that, um, I'm gonna introduce the panelists. I'll introduce them all simultaneously or you know, concurrently, and then they will speak for about 10 to 12 minutes, and then we'll get right into Q&A. So our I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will be speaking. So first, we have uh, Dr. John Ebersall over here in the uh, lovely tie. Um, he's the president of Excelsior College in New York, which is an accredited nonprofit institution of 40,000 adult students. Um, this is his ninth year as president. Uh, he's overseen adult continuing and online education programs at the University of California, Berkeley, Colorado State, and Boston University. He is a retired Coast Guard commander and a distinguished graduate of the US Naval War College. Um, he himself was sort of an adult post-traditional uh, student and continued to be throughout his, uh, throughout his career. And he can tell you a little bit about that. To your right, is, to his right is uh, Dr. Peter Smith, who is very familiar with the, um, the woes of uh, elections, and especially in this town. So currently, he's the founding president of the Open College at Kaplan University. But before, uh, in a prior life, he was a member of the US House of Representatives um, from the state of Vermont, was a former um, lieutenant governor of Vermont. He also loves to found things in addition to Open College at Kaplan University. He's the founding president of the Community College of Vermont, founding president of California State University, Monterey Bay, and was an assistant director of education at UNESCO. And then all the way to your left is uh, Barb McNasirian, who's the Director of Federal Relations and Policy Analysis with the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, where he coordinates the legislative, regulatory, and uh, public policy for the, at the federal level. He's been, for those of you in the know, which all of you are, <laughs> he's been active on federal higher education policy issues for more than 20 years, working on a broad range of issues, including higher ed finance, academic policy, quality assurance, privacy and tax policy. And then to his right, your right, no, his left, your right, oi, I told you, I'm tired, uh, is our host who has already introduced himself as the director of uh, Cato Center for uh, Educational Freedom. But prior to that, he also uh, served in the armed forces. He was in the US Army, he's taught high school English and was a freelance reporter covering general municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. Um, and that's that's our that's our team that's our crew and we're going to start with uh, with John, who I think is going to give us some words and then is going to share with us uh, a film based on the book that he has written recently called Courageous Learning. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, thank you all for coming out this afternoon and uh, having an interest in um, what we call the post-traditional learner. 
uh, when 85% of those enrolled in higher education today are uh, not studying full-time on a campus, uh, are older, and are balancing uh, many sets of responsibilities at the same time as their education, um, it's, it's, it's time for us to uh, help the policy community understand that the students they envision when they develop their policy um, really are a minority of individuals today. I, I, I had a meeting with a newspaper reporter yesterday at this very hour, and turned out that she attended Penn State, that she studied full-time on campus and finished in four years. Uh, and was very much aware of the fact that she was a rarity, that that is not typical today. My institution was founded in 1971 by the regents of the state of New York, inspired by the British Open University, um, and went on to help four other states create similar institutions. And I suspect there are a few in the room that could name any of these institutions uh, because they continue uh, to serve a very important sector of higher education uh, in the student communities, but they've never had the money to draw much attention to them. Uh, Empire State in New York was created uh, at the same time that we were, and the creation was based on foundation money. It was Carnegie and Ford that provided the initial money. Um, Empire went with you, the SUNY system, uh, whereas Regents College, as we were once known, existed right in the Department uh, of uh, Education in the state of New York. 1998, we became a private institution, uh, have always been nonprofit, and have never received any tax support. We've always been operating as a, a self-sustaining operation. We were what is known as a non-appropriated fund activity when we were initially created. One of the things that we were asked to do, the mission which drives our organization to this day, is to serve the older student, the individual that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity, perhaps, to finish a degree. And we want to introduce you to the type of student that we're talking about in this short video that we have. And I want to tell you right up front, this isn't about my institution. This is about our students. But it's not just our students. It's Peter's students. It's it's. Uh, virtually every institution has some of these students within it, but not all of them are serving them well, and we feel like that we have a lot of work ahead of us still in getting the policy community to recognize the fact that uh, there's a huge shift uh, in who's seeking education today. The old line about lifelong learning, uh, no longer is that uh, just a catchphrase. Uh, that's a reality. And if we're going to have a competitive economy and a competitive society, uh, we need to be not only encouraging people to continue in school and go back to school, but we need to recognize that the needs of the 39-year-old that I serve are somewhat different than the 18- to 22-year-old that the policy community tends to think of. So with all of that, by way of um, foreshadowing, I, I'm giving the, the back room the five-second notice they asked for. The American economy, revolutionary change, in the blink of an eye. But revolutions create casualties. 
we lost about 15 million jobs in the recession, and those are still not coming back. So that leaves experienced workers with no place to go. What you saw in the recession was actually that the gaps widened. So folks with higher learning were actually more insulated from the market, while folks with high school diplomas sort of fell off a cliff, frankly. It's a crisis we can no longer ignore. If we're going to continue to attract the kinds of business and industry we need, uh, improve our economy, we got to have a talented, educated workforce. We need to go back to the idea that education is a societal good. It's something we all have a responsibility for. It used to be that you didn't need a college degree to land a solid middle-class job. Between 1946 and 73, we were a high school dropout economy, really. In the old days, the United States were the master of producing standardized goods and services, mass production, at very low cost. Used to be, if you could run a particular machine, then you could do the job. You don't have to be an economist or a sociologist to know that education is what provides upward mobility. We have a less educated workforce as a percentage of the population than ever before. The U.S. once created more college-educated young adults than any nation on Earth. Now it ranks 16th. The problem is so big, it has landed on the president's desk. President Obama set a very ambitious goal for all of our education, and that was to return the U.S. to our rightful place in the world order of educated adults. He wants to see 60% increase in adult degree holders within 10 years. The answer lies in the 36 million Americans aged 25 to 64 who have some college experience but no degree. My name is Carrie Sullivan. I'm 43. My name is Joseph Baguette. I'm Sean Geraci. My I'm name is Angeline Williams. My name is I'm Brian Newell. I'm 31. Years old. This is what the American student body looks like today. A typical student is someone who has a life, has a family, is in the military, is a veteran, is going back to school while working, maybe taking care of parents. It's a whole different, whole different world for students like that. My name is Joseph Baguette. I'm attending the University of District of Columbia to receive my human development degree and a minor in early childhood education. I got out of the military and I couldn't really use any of my military background towards a job. I wasn't earning enough money to even be on my own, to have my own place with my children. So I decided to attend this college. It did seem like a giant mountain. Four years in college, you know, I can't afford that. The high cost of tuition can make college seem out of reach. We have folks that need and want credentials. We have an economy that is thirsty for people that are higher skilled. We have a big problem, and that is that the cost of providing it is very, very expensive, and it's only growing.
colleges need to lower, not raise tuition. But that's a tough sell. We have a, a problem uh, in that the traditional college system, so to speak, prefers to serve 18 to 24-year-olds for a lot of reasons. We have a whole new market, really, that we haven't served before. Veterans are a big part of this emerging market. Michelle and Geraci, uh, I just finished my bachelor's degree after 26 years. In the service, Sean Geraci had high-level responsibilities and the skills to match, but no degree. Then he retired. I did project management and even had multiple projects and did program management. And I found out that once I get out, if I don't have a piece of paper, it's, it's like it didn't happen. In his search for government contractor work, Sean hit a wall. For civilian employers, a college degree wasn't optional. They require a bachelor's degree, even though I am sitting literally right next to a man or woman who's a civilian doing the exact same job I'm doing, and I don't, I'm not qualified anymore. It's not that he didn't try to earn a degree. Initially, I was moving every one and a half to three years. Every, every time I would go to a new college or university, I was like, oh, look, you're a sophomore again. Oh, look, you're a junior again. You're a junior again. You're a junior again. Like, <laughs> wait a second. At one point, I had 211 semester hours and no degree. I was losing ground. The obstacles Sean faced in transferring college credits left him in a black hole of red tape. Traditional higher education has said, this isn't my job. We're at capacity. We're serving all the students we can. We're trying to bring our costs down, and going out in pursuit of brand-new markets isn't the way for us to do that. But ignoring adult students only pushes the problem down the road. We need a new approach. My name is Angeline Williams. I'm currently a student at Walden University receiving my bachelor's in nursing. Angeline is part of a new wave in 21st century American education. A mother of two, she had a steady, skilled job in a hospital. I, I loved being a scrub tech. I used to always tell my husband, you know, well, my goal was to go back for nursing school. I was like, how am I going to work and go back to school? Her family encouraged her. She enrolled in a nursing program at her local community college. When the first day of class came, I was like, oh... I can't believe I'm really doing this. Despite the challenges, Angeline earned her associate's degree. But she didn't want to stop there. I know the push is eventually for nurses to have your bachelor's. For that job security, I really need to push on. But working full-time and with a family, I can't just quit work and go to school full-time. She isn't alone. We have this burgeoning demand from folks who uh, are recognizing that in order to advance um, in their field and in their career, or maybe even switch careers, that they need to, to go back to the education system and, and, and retool. Well, where do they turn? Where do they start? This is about half of the total uh, documentary, uh, and if anyone would like to see it in its entirety, it's available to you at, at no cost at all at www.courageouslearningnopunctuation.com. Um, the 
point that I made earlier, you, you see three individuals here, um, all uh, middle, middle life, midlife, um, middle point in their uh, professions, two of them coming out of the military, one of them wanting to uh, move up as a nurse, and yet not finding that the skills and the learning which took place when they were on active duty uh, translate into uh, an academic setting, um, finding that as a community college graduate with an associate's degree, um, you have quite a difficult time working and trying to go into a traditional nursing program because our traditional nursing programs are all envisioned around uh, full-time study for the most part. So to go from the student and to talk now for just a, a second, and then I want to give it back to Amy, is, is that my institution uh, has had as its one of its uh, responsibilities given to us by the state originally, reinforced by our board of trustees, is, is to advocate on behalf of the adult student. And it is for that reason that we produced the video, and it's for that reason that I wrote the book. Um, these are not commercial enterprises. These are efforts to provide knowledge about options that people might not otherwise be aware of. Uh, we do not find that um, uh, the going is easy. We've got a lot of uh, individuals today who are joining us in trying to bring about some change. Uh, I have to give Amy a lot of credit. She wrote a white paper, uh, what's it been, two years ago now? And I, I, I refer to her as, as really the person most responsible for competency-based education. Uh, she is the one that pointed out the disconnect between seat time and learning outcomes, that 30 hours, 45 hours sitting in a seat doesn't necessarily guarantee you learned anything. What we want to see more of today is competency and an example of what it is you can do with the knowledge that you've acquired, whether that knowledge is acquired in a classroom or on a battlefield or in a hospital ward. Uh, we have a philosophy at, at Excelsior that those of my colleagues who may be watching will, will chastise me for if I don't mention it, but our philosophy is it's what you know, not where or how you learned it. And our responsibility is to provide validity to the processes by which we uh, assess that learning, determine that it really exists, and now with competency-based education, prove that you know how to use it. Amy, I'm going to quit right there. Sounds great. Actually, I'm just going to turn it right over to Peter. Well, thank you, Amy. I, um, I'm going to reframe my comments a little bit because I, I associate myself with absolutely everything that John has just uh, said, so I don't think you need to hear another, another uh, uh, eloquent peroration uh, about learners and learning. I realized about 20 years ago that I am uh, in love with learning, and as an educator have made it my number one uh, objective to organize learning environments starting in 1970-71 uh, when Empire State College and the Regents College were founded, so was the Community College of Vermont. And we were all part of the same family. We were looking at assessing prior learning. We carried the same philosophy. Uh, what's happened is that the game has come to us, largely because of uh, the new technologies and 
what I would call the great uh, disruptive influencer, which is abundant information, which has simply changed the field of play for any organized institution, whether it's education or health or banking or you name it. We now have consumers who know more and believe they have more rights to do more in different things and take more control over their lives than at any time before. When I was starting the Community College of Vermont, the politics were all with the other institutions of higher education. But if you think about it, and, and that was how we, we had to win that fight in order to establish the college, which we did and we did. But today, the thing about information abundance is that the academy doesn't control it, the government, I, as far as I know, doesn't control it, doesn't control all of it anyway. Um, uh, in fact, the, the seeds of learning, of unbundling the, the, the value proposition that it is, has been higher education and then rebundling it in multiple ways, we can do that now. So it, there's a, before the academy, uh, the, the, the boundary of the campus was the boundary of the power, and the people who lived on the campus controlled what went on in the community around it. If you think the campus was an oasis, and the community around it, when it came to learning, was a desert, and you had to go to that place in order to get what you needed. Now the, the desert has gone green, uh, and the ability for people to rethink, remodel, think up new modes, rebundle, uh, has become, um, uh, well, enormous. Um, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but you will see my, my perspective comes from founding th three colleges, uh, from um, serving on the Vermont Senate Education Committee, serving on the House of Representatives, then Education and Labor Committee, and spending a lot of time involved in connecting policy with practice uh, since 1970. Um, I think that uh, the election was good news for our sector, but I don't think that's the point. And if that became the point, uh, it would be a huge misdirection or misallocation of intellectual energy. It is also, I believe, good news for in innovation, for a climate of innovation. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm imagining, I'm hoping for a balance, if you will, uh, between the current posture of the Department of Education and the marketplace of ideas that is abroad in the community. And somehow we have to uh, protect quality on the one hand, but allow uh, for new ideas and new things to be tried in a climate where if you, you can fail fast and move on without paying a heavy, a heavy um, price. So when you think about um, this changing landscape, there are, there are two issues that arise for me. One is access and the other is quality assurance. How do we serve underserved adults, meet the president's stated goals in an environment of declining state capacity or will to support public higher education um, and with a general education, um, I'm sorry, a gainful employment rule that estimates we're gonna go backwards between 700 and 900,000 low, low access uh, at-risk learners at least. To me, what we've got to figure out is, how do we create the environment at the edge? If we have standard practice in its, in its traditional forms, we've got to protect the edges of that practice and let new practitioners and people with new ideas from all directions operate on that boundary and invent, create new information, new models, new practices, and do the research that will show uh, that they work. Um, 
And the second, I, I am glad I'm not a regulator in this environment because I don't know how you, how you regulate in, in a scarce information environment. A vertical approach to regulation is the only way you can get it done. Uh, but in an abundant uh, information environment, you flatten, structures get flattened. We talk about how things are going of, uh, horizontal as opposed to, to vertical. And it strikes me a good example of that would be, those of you familiar with uh, SARA, the state regulatory approach, which is being put together across multiple states. It is a national solution, not a federal solution, to the critical issue of how do we assure that an institution has been reviewed, um, not by an accreditor, but by somebody else. Uh, and I think Sarah can be, and may well be, the beginning of a new way of thinking nationally, but leaving uh, what the last time I looked was a state responsibility, which is the control of education. Uh, I, I think I'm right on that. I'm not a great student of the Constitution, but I think I'm right on that. So the new mode, the new model I'm working on is called Open College at Kaplan University, opencollege.kaplan.com. And what it really is is guided independent study. Uh, it is assessment-based. Um, we have academic mentors. We, we look at all the learning that people bring with them in a portfolio review. We place them. Uh, we have a Bachelor of Professional Studies, what we're starting with, very flexible major, good for returning adults. Um, and we will place people as, as close to the degree, up to 75% as we can do um, uh, when they enter. So we do a full-scale assessment when they enter, and then we write an individualized learning plan and assign them an academic mentor, and they go off and use MOOCs. They go off and use MOOCs. They, they can pay money if they want, but they, we've got a MOOC organizer so that we got... 30,000 courses uh, in the Open Education Consortium, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can organize those by, by any category that works for the learner, and they learn. And when they've developed, they've got learning outcomes they need to meet. When they come back, they, they can take a test, or they can do a mini portfolio. We review it. They meet the requirements. They move on. So it's a, I would call it evidence-based as opposed to competency-based, but we'll rhetorically, we'll figure out what that's about. All we about. needed was another term. Yeah, thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, but I, so that's, so we're doing that. The, the thing that I think is so exciting about distance learning or post-traditional learning, John's term, which I like, we think we know now how to get evidence around, or competence, around the knowledge, skills, and ability, the title of the course, if you will. We also think we know how to assess uh, across a course for the quality of writing, of critical thinking, of problem solving. In other words, those are tools that people develop as they're learning or bring with them when they learn. But we've never paid much. We talk about it a lot, but we've never thought about how we would actually get them to demonstrate it at an increasing levels of capability. And the third is things that employers are looking for uh, that make you ready to work. My argument is we've got people ready to graduate all over America, not enough of them, but not a lot of them are ready to work on day one. And so the question of critical thinking, problem solving, leadership, teamwork, diversity, how do we develop a person's profile of what they know and can do, what they have done that demonstrate their abilities in that area as well? So those are the three points of the, the learning triangle for me. Now, in terms of ratings, and, I'll, and then I'll uh, 
Oh, quiet down for a minute. We favor ratings. You know, the only people that shouldn't like a rating are the top 500 colleges in America because they got nothing to gain and everything to lose because they're living on reputation. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I went to a couple of them. But the fact of the matter is we know that if we can get an objective apples-to-apples apples comparison of what we're doing with learning results based on a constant uh, approach to demography into the mode of, the mode of learning, uh, if we can get an apples-to-apples apples comparison, we will learn from that and we will get better because of it and it will establish us in the, along the spectrum of higher education institutions. Uh, so we favor, we favor it. I actually, secondly, would say, I think accreditation is actually, everyone likes to you know, get, go negative on regional accreditors and the national accreditors. I think they've adapted, they are adapting fairly well. They're doing, uh, and they're doing an important role and I think to dismiss them out of hand is a huge mistake. Um, and then finally, I would simply say, when we're talking about ratings, I think earnings, especially early earnings, are just a very bad, very bad measure. I'll give you my example. <clears throat> I graduated from Princeton University with a history degree, uh, and then I went to Harvard, God forbid, uh, to get a teaching degree. I then went back to Vermont and, and was an intern, and then I founded a street academy for dropouts. And then the next year, I founded what is now the Community College of Vermont. I didn't make $10,000 a year until I was about 29 years old. Do um, you think we ought to put those institutions out of, out of whack? Put them away because I didn't make any money the first six years that I was out of school? I think if you look, you'll find that our president actually uh, didn't make very much money out of school either, because he was a community organizer. So I think we need to pay attention to learning outcomes by mode, by demography. In terms of reauthorization, will it be protectionist to the ivory tower? I hope not. Will it be a free trade zone where anything goes? I hope not. But somehow we've got to figure out how to balance the legitimate concerns of state, I would say, and, and to some extent the federal presence, with a burgeoning marketplace of new ideas that hold learning high and put learning at the center that are going to reinvent what higher education looks like. Thanks. No, um, if you can hear me. Um, it's a difficult and diffused conversation. I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, I'm a little surprised because in the abstract and in general, I certainly agree with pretty much everything that's been said. Um, but my job sometimes is to problematize stuff. So I should do that on my own behalf only, personally. On a good day, I agree with myself. Certainly wouldn't attribute anything I say to anybody else. Um, so let's, since we're at Cato, let's begin by observing that none of what is being discussed here is abstractly precluded. I mean, you know, there's, if you want to open a university and you want to offer evidence-based or outcomes-based or competency-based education, this remains a free enough country that you could do that. There's no prohibition against it. The prohibition really has to do with the extent to which public funds should underwrite new efforts, innovation, 
uh, untested. Untested sounds pejorative, but untested simply means untested. It may work out, it may not. I think that's the debate. The debate is not whether uh, evidence-based education can work. I absolutely concede uh, that uh, teaching is one function and credentialing is a parallel function. And it's not, to me, inconceivable that you can have a credentialing authority that doesn't do any teaching. Right? I mean, the Ford Motor Company used to manufacture every little screw in a car itself. Today, Ford is a label and a warranty and, and, and uh, may end up outsourcing 90% of a car. It remains a Ford insofar as the consumer is concerned because that's who warrants the product. So I don't have a problem with the idea that maybe the holy trinity of education, which in the old days used to be curriculum, instruction, and assessment, what you teach, how you teach it, how you measure what was learned, that that holy trinity can be disaggregated. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, in very practical terms, and, and by the way, I absolutely agree with the comments that have been made with regard to tribalism in traditional higher ed, with the fact that traditional higher ed has been slow to react to demographic and fundamental economic shifts, that, that in many ways the model of higher ed as insular probably really sort of has hampered the, the responsiveness of the industry as a sector to the needs of this country. I, don't con I think that's incontestable. I think that's just true. Uh, the question in my mind, from a fairly practical point of view, is uh, A, whether every student, and perhaps particularly the students who need the service the most, right, the ones who may be uh, very busy, the ones who may have obligations from complexities of life, the ones who may be underprepared for true collegiate level work, the extent to which you could totally delegate. Now, I'm, you know, I realize this is susceptible to pushback, but the extent to which you could delegate significant components of the instructional function to them, in many ways they would be least likely to be able to teach them, yes, you know, I, I have confidence in Neil. I, you know, Neil has a PhD. Dr. Ebersole has a PhD. I'm sure if they wanted to learn something, they are most likely to be able to be autodidacts and learn whatever they need to learn on their own, given the enormous amount of additional and highly democratized ways in which information is now available. It's really stunning. It truly is. So, so, so yes, learning outside the classroom, outside the structure of the credit hour, outside the traditional faculty pouring water into a cup uh, called learning, uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's absolutely credible. The extent to which it's scalable, the extent to which it's likely to fit the needs of the population that is most in need of that information remains an open question, and I think we should absolutely try it. We should, we should experiment with it. There, there are things that institutions can do, certainly, uh, but let's be cognizant of it from a cost point of view. From a cost point of view, having been around long enough to, to see the zeal with which higher ed runs down what later proves to have been a blind alley. Let's, let's, re, let's not make our mistakes in haste. Uh, I vividly remember in the mid-90s when anybody who said the internet could terminate the conversation on the strength of their visionary take on the future of higher ed, which was going to be everybody was going to have a Harvard degree, and it was all going to be online, it was going to cost nothing, and, you know, end of the story. Well. You know, that didn't happen, far from it. I think the advent of, of 
of distanced ended up with peculiarities. For example, we now give not only full tuition and costs pretty much on par for for distance ed, but we give living expenses. So there's a guy sitting in his underwear in the basement of his parents' house with a giant bag of potato chips, and he's doing uh, distance ed, and we're paying for what would otherwise be, you know, cost that he, he would have paid for anyway. So we have these sort of odd situations. I find it very stunning, for example, when, when I hear institutions suggest that prior learning is something they can charge tuition money for. Prior learning, to me, at best, is transfer credit. It's basically the experiential equivalent of credits coming in from structured credits coming from another institution. You, you certainly you can cause you can charge a, an assessment fee of some kind, but the notion of charging somebody for what they already know, well, if they know it, what are you charging them for? You can certainly charge them to assess that knowledge, to structure that knowledge, to transcribe that knowledge. But really, shouldn't charge them tuition. So, so that's my. I mean, I, I'm very excited and interested in competency-based education. I go around saying it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not for medieval philosophy or comparative literature, the lucrative fields that I went into. But be that as it may, I think it has a place, and we ought to experiment with it. I take a lot more comfort if I had some evidence that people, private, private transactions validated them before we start pumping billions of taxpayers' dollars into them, mostly because purpose of evasion is almost inevitable, right? I mean, everything, the more loosey-goosey it gets, the more susceptible to, to abuse it becomes. So that's my concern. Uh, with regard to the election, just to circle around, I actually think a bunch of good things will happen. I, I am not concerned about the ratings. My organization has certainly been very sotto voce in terms of opining about their likely um, impact. My concern is that any forecast, no matter how good faith, no matter how evidence-based, is a forecast. And it's a forecast of decades in the future, as Dr. Smith pointed out. You know, the fact that somebody doesn't make money today doesn't mean he won't make, you know, make a good living down the road. So, so the better option from my point of view is a little more financial literacy on the part of the government, not the students. Uh, what I'd like to see is risk retention so that institutions remain on the hook for the debt that they manufacture. That is really the better way to go so that, so that we can have all kinds of uh, variations and experimentation without necessarily allowing the allocation of risk to be rigged on the basis of defective forecast. I think uh, ratings are pretty much dead politically, I think gainful is pretty much contrary to the confident assertions I picked up this morning. I, I think the gainful reg is likely to be defunded, and it may surprise you as a strong advocate of a strong reg that I actually don't think that's such a terrible thing because I think this reg is now n not even a fig leaf. So whether it exists or doesn't doesn't bother me anymore. I'll stop there. I'm going to... I'm going to venture up to the podium just so that Cato's investment in this fine piece of wood doesn't go to waste. Um, uh, I'm going to quickly uh, mention or, or respond to something you said, Peter, uh, which is absolutely in the Constitution. The federal government doesn't have authority over education. I'm duty-bound to say that. I, I'm duty-bound to use this podium and to tell you the Constitution doesn't give the federal government authority over education. Um, and now I'm going to do something that is not, I'm not duty-bound to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and that is I'm going to tell you a little bit of good news about American higher education. And that is 
It's not as bad as American K through 12 education. Um, and this is an important thing. It's going to, I'm going to really get to an important distinction uh, that I hope will, will then it, it will lead into a little uh, election analysis and hopefully uh, some good discussion here. Usually when I say a lot of people get angry, and I, sort of that's my job, I suppose. Uh, so some of the good news on uh, American higher education is definitely it's internationally respected. You know, if you look at the top destination for kids who want to study uh, abroad, this country is where they go. Uh, it's highly accomplished. We have lots of Nobel Prize winners in, in college universities. Lots of patents come from college university. There's a lot going on in American higher education. It's very dynamic. One of the reasons I think it's very dynamic is it is largely consumer-driven and has pretty autonomous institutions. Uh, unlike K through 12, where you have essentially government provision of a monopoly, one school is what you get. We do base this in some degree of competition, specialization, and schools having the ability to cater what they do to different populations of kids. Uh, and I shouldn't say kids. See, that is a natural slip people make, but of course it's not kids anymore. It's all sorts of people of all sorts of at different ages who need different things out of post-secondary education. So within sort of even traditional higher education, we had this sort of specialization to some extent. You know, you can think about there were liberal arts colleges, there were big public universities, you had lots of different majors to choose from. And now you can move beyond these traditional school types, as we've talked about. Uh, you can go to the MOOCs, you can pursue competency-based education, et cetera. So what's the problem then with higher education? Because ordinarily, uh, I don't have good things to say about higher ed. Um, and the problem is massive subsidies, and I think this is what Barmack was starting to get at, uh, and, and great analysis, I think, by the way, from everybody on this, but I'm just going to go after my, some people would say hobby horse, but this is what I think is really the biggest problem in higher education, and that is subsidies. That fuels uh, price inflation, and it fuels a great deal of overconsumption and waste and misallocation of, of resources. So. It's great to be consumer driven. It's a big problem if you heavily subsidize the choice of those consumers. Uh, the first problem, of course, is huge inflation in prices. I probably don't need to go over this. Most people know it. I'll just give you some quick numbers. Uh, we know that tuition fees, room and board inflation in those prices has greatly outpaced ordinary inflation, household income, and things like that. In just the last 10 years, Tuition fee room and board at private four-year schools adjusted for inflation rose from $33,098 to almost $41,000. That's a 24% increase after inflation. At public four-year institutions, uh, it's gone from $13,376 to $18,391, and that's a 37% real increase in the price. But something else has grown even faster than that, and that is aid per, per student. Uh, so if you look between academic year 2002-2003 and 2012-13, aid per full-time equivalent student rose from $9,701 to almost $15,000. That is a 54% leap. So that increase is greater as a percentage than we've seen in the tuition fees room and board. What that strongly suggests is there is a connection. And it's almost certain that what that aid does is one, enables colleges to raise their prices at faster paces than they otherwise would. Doesn't mean they're just raising their price to raise their price. They have things they think they'd like to do that are, they think are important, but they have to get the money from somewhere to do it. 
It's also encouraged students to demand things that often have very little to do with academics. So you've seen big increases in, uh, in, in amenities. Uh, I talk about, because it's always interesting, there's been sort of a mini explosion in water parks to be found at colleges and universities. Uh, I've I long talked about the University of Missouri just because it's the first one I was aware of. They have something called the Tiger Grotto, where you can you can get on a raft and you go around a lazy river and you can get people in Hawaiian shirts will come and serve you, you know, uh, like vitamin drinks and things like that. Not to be outdone, Southwest Missouri State, which I think actually has changed their name recently. Now they have a new water park because you're competing with the University of Missouri. They got a water park. You got to have a water park. Uh, and then Texas Tech has a, a brand new water park, which from what I can tell from the pictures is even fancier than those found in the state of Missouri. Uh, what those suggest is there's a lot of money in higher education that is not directed at what higher ed is for, and that's academics. Um, the, the more systematic evidence we have than just the water parks, although clearly the water parks are all I need to mention, uh, is you can look at things like uh, non-completion. Non-completion is a huge problem. And Part of the reason, no doubt, that we have non-completion is this federal government in particular will give money to people to go to college regardless of their degree of motivation, what they want to study, what their background is. There's very little uh, that you need to show that you are prepared and motivated to do college-level work. And so we have these 150% uh, of expected time rates of, of graduation understand this is for first-time, full-time students finishing at the institution where they begin. So this probably is kind of the worst-case scenario, but we have plenty of reason to believe that the, the reality isn't all that much better than worst-case scenario. So the best of the four-year institutions for completion rates within six years, now talking about four-year degree programs, are private nonprofit schools. Only 65.4% of those students graduate within six years. That's the best, so two-thirds are finishing. Um, the best for two-year programs or certificate programs is actually at private for-profit schools where you see 61.7% completing within 150% of expected time. Again, now that's less than two-thirds. And, and community colleges, you see a completion rate, again, for first-time, full-time students who finish there. So there, is, there are transfers. But that's only 20.2%, so one out of five completes. This is a huge problem and it's heavily subsidized by taxpayers. But, and then we have to talk about what about the people who finish? According to the New York Fed, but this statistic's been incited other places, about a third of people with a bachelor's degree are in jobs that don't require that credential. So very roughly one out of every two people who enter college are gonna finish, very roughly. And then about a third of those people are going to have jobs, and many of them ultimately careers that don't require that credential. That is a whole lot of higher education being used or being consumed that ultimately isn't used. Uh, and the Fed also reports that the quality of those jobs is getting worse that people with bachelors uh, end up getting that don't require it. In the 1990s, about a half of people underemployed were in decently paying career track jobs. By 2009, only 36% were. So they are not in jobs where you know, there's sort of a set progression and you have a fair amount of job security. Uh, and then we see the same problem in people getting advanced degrees. So uh, according to the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, in 2008, 59% of master's holders were in jobs that didn't require that degree. Uh, and 22% of PhD holders were in jobs that didn't require that degree. But they assumed 
that you weren't underemployed if you had a PhD and were in a job that the Bureau of Labor Statistics said required a BA or higher or a master's degree. So probably that 22% greatly understates underemployment for PhDs. Okay, so how about those people who do finish and they get a job that requires their degree? Well, the next sign of, of huge, actually, I think, overconsumption of higher education driven by subsidies is credential inflation. Basically, it used to be, as, as, as the video said, it used to be that we had an economy where, you know, if you had a high school diploma, that was a signal of something powerful about you, that you were, you know, you were able to accomplish things, uh, that you probably had a good work ethic, basic things that an employer could infer from your having a high school degree. Uh, now, it seems that you know, we eventually moved to a bachelor's degree, but bachelor's degrees have become fairly ubiquitous. And so now we're, the signal is becoming a master's degree or higher. Well, what's the evidence, though, that this is caused by people just needing some signal about their basic um, personality traits, you know, to work hard, to show up, versus they're actually going to college to learn things they can only learn in college and that are in demand in the economy? Well, we, we don't have absolutely comprehensive data, but we have a lot of really telling, I think, uh, pieces of evidence that suggest there's a lot more sheepskin out there, but not a lot more skills and abilities to go with it. So you could first look at the National Assessment of Adult Literacy. It's only been done twice, unfortunately, 1992 and 2003. But what it showed were big decreases in the, in the percentage of people with bachelor's degrees and advanced degrees who were literate in things like prose literacy, document literacy, and quantitative literacy. So in other words, we have a lot more people with degrees, but the degree doesn't, it, it, there's actually less uh, literacy, at least, in all sorts of dimensions for, on average, the person who has it. If you look at earnings between 2000 and 2012, only the weekly earnings of people with advanced degrees rose. Even those with bachelor's degrees were essentially stagnant, and they might have dropped a little bit. Then you have everybody who follows higher education knows Academically Adrift uh, by Aram and Roxa, and it talked about great decreases in how much time kids spend, or students spend studying, um, their, their decreases in critical thinking scores, although I think critical thinking is something that's very hard to measure. But they provide evidence that actually what's going on in the schools is less about learning and academics. And then finally, the HR firm Burning Glass just reported a few weeks ago, they did sort of a survey where they looked at job announcements in newspapers, and then they looked at BLS data of what the people in those kinds of jobs, what credentials they had, and they found in many, many cases, most of the ads said you must have a bachelor's degree or you must have some other degree. But in many cases, the people in those jobs currently don't have such degrees, and there was no evidence or little evidence that the people they were trying to get needed to have any different skills or ability than the people already in there. That suggests that this ubiquity of, of credentials essentially enables uh, employers to say, well, of course, you have to have this, or we wouldn't even consider you, even though having this, the degree, doesn't signify any greater skills or ability. And so I think that the ultimate problem here is that student aid fuels all sorts of people making decisions about what kind of higher education they're consume, or I should say post-secondary education, and they tend to both consume uh, degrees where they go to a school that offers all sorts of things that are not directly about academics, and then many people pursue degrees that aren't necessarily useful to them or ultimately useful to society.
Um, I think the good news is that people started to kind of resist the traditional model of higher education. You've seen growth in for-profit schooling, lots of talk now about competency-based education. People are looking, I think, for alternatives. Um, but again, the problem we're going to run into is even as they look for alternatives, it's often going to be using third-party money, taxpayer money, that will reduce their incentives to find the most efficient, effective way that education can be delivered to them and to, to give the greatest amount of scrutiny to what it is they are pursuing and what they want to get out of it. Um, and that is the fundamental problem, that these subsidies ultimately don't help. All their unintended consequences are massive, including that they reduce drastically, I think, people's willingness and desire to become efficient in what they choose. So what does the election bode for all this? I mean, obviously, you can get the point I'm getting at, which is that I think the federal government needs to drastically reduce higher education. I mean, sorry, not higher education necessarily, but subsidies. Um, obviously, that's not something you do overnight, but I think they need to be phased out. I don't think, though, that this move, now that we have, a, you know, we will have a Republican majority in the Senate, um, I don't think they're going to do much when it comes to student aid. Uh, it's sort of a third rail because there's an assumption that student aid is necessarily good and necessarily makes higher education more affordable. And we don't talk about all the huge unintended consequences that go with that. Uh, I do, though, think maybe we could see some tinkering around the margins. There's been, it strikes me, a beginning of coalescing of some agreement, at least among kind of wonk types, like many we see here, um, that we should begin to at least examine things like Parent PLUS loans and tax credit programs, things that are really geared not to low-income people, but to upper and middle and upper-income people, things that would really drive the prices higher most directly. Maybe something could happen on those programs, because I really do think there's some consensus that they are counterproductive. I, I also think that there could be an effort to, to try and gut gainful employment, and I think that um, uh, for those of you who don't know gainful employment, the big issue is that it seems to be mainly geared at attacking for-profit schools when we know that there are huge problems throughout higher education. And certainly uh, Senator Harkin, the outgoing chair of the Senate Health Committee, who's going to retire anyway, but he'll no longer be there. And then Senator Durbin, I think, was probably the person who was likely to take his place. Or it could have been, I don't know, I don't follow this closely. Maybe it was Senator Murray. Um, but... Regardless of who it was, now that they're not in the majority, it's harder to get sort of that um, bully pulpit to continue to hammer away rhetorically at one sector of higher education. Uh, I also think that that will have some effect on Senator Warren, who had been pushing for federal loan forgiveness, or not federal loan forgiveness so much as refinancing. So if you had a private loan with a high interest rate, the federal government would essentially uh, Take that from you, pay the private lender what they were expecting to get, and give you a lower rate. I think those sorts of things, which ultimately I think just fuel more overconsumption, those sorts of things won't happen. But I don't think there's a good reason to believe that a Republican-controlled Senate, Republican-controlled House, is going to do anything particularly substantive to address the root problem, which is massive subsidization of people's college choices. Well, thanks. Uh, no strong opinions on this uh, on this panel. So um, I'm just going to ask a few questions, and then if folks in the audience want to ask some questions, have them in your mind. I think I have some notes about how to ask them, um, but I'll wait to tell you those until I actually stop 
stop chatting. So I think that there is, I think Neil's right that there's not likely to, uh, to be a massive decrease in federal financial aid. Whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing will vary on this panel. But, um, you know, and some of that is for reasons of institutional power and lobbying and, and not having to do with, you know, what's in the best interest of students. I mean, the parent plus loan issue we could talk about for a long time. But I think, you know, what's interesting to me about this panel is it sort of seems that most folks are agreeing that, that we need to talk about the students of today, and we need to figure out where to meet them, meet them where they are, take them where they need to go. That all sounds great. We all agree, as Barmack said, sort of how do you do it? I mean, I think what is, uh, what's tricky is that everybody wants now it to be evidence-based and to focus on learning, right? We love learning. But who is going to define what that is? And as Congress decides whether or not it's going to create a safe space for innovation, who, is, who would you have uh, be the arbiters of quality. I mean, is it the accreditors? Do we think that's working well? I mean, I'm just going to, you know, opine a little bit and sort of say what, you know, refer to the, um, what does the NAL stand for again? The National Assessment of Adult Literacy. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that there really is a lot of evidence that college graduates are not learning a lot, right? They're spending a ton of money. They're not learning a lot. Part of the reason for competency-based education, in my mind, is to really make not the mode of delivery what matters, but the actual learning uh, knowable, definable, transparent. But at the end of the day, in order to do that, you have to have some arbiter of quality and some arbiter who is believed and trusted. And right now, I don't know if I trust institutions and accreditors as they have been doing to do that. So who would you have play that quality assurance role? And, and in order to get, for specifically in, for federal financial aid, in order to have access to those dollars? Well, I'm not sure this is the answer that you're looking for, Amy, but... That's fine. Uh, <clears throat> I'm shocked. <laughs> but uh, clearly, when we start talking about competency-based education, the final arbiter is going to be the employer. You either have the competency that you claim you have or you don't. Mm-hmm. And if you are creating a program as an institution that does not include the employer in setting the core competencies, you don't include the employer in determining the methods of assessment or who does the assessing, you're probably going to have a problem. Uh, and I think it's going to be uh, undermine the entire movement if we have institutions going out there claiming to be offering competence and they're offering evidence or proficiency or mastery or some of these other terms that are being thrown around right now. So I, I think that the ultimate decider is going to be the employer. Would you tie, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're Chairman Klein or you're uh, Chair Alexander and you're thinking about either writ large higher education funding or for a narrow piece of competency-based education, would you make that a requirement for getting uh, access to those Title IV funds? That employers say, yes, indeed, the graduates of your program are, uh, have the competencies that we need and that we wanted. Well, I don't mean to monopolize here, but I, I, I want to pick up on the point that was made when you're assessing prior learning, what is it that you're paying for? Yeah. Uh, and it's you're paying for the assessment. And as someone that's in that business, it costs us $100,000 and takes a year to get a field-tested, nationally normed assessment, uh, and that's before we start putting simulations and computer programming behind it. Okay. Uh, so we're going to have to be paying for that assessment, even though I do believe that the learning can be had for free. And we're not paying for teaching, we're paying for learning. 
And I think that's a really important difference, by the way. Okay, and I know Peter wants to say something. I think this point about a nationally normed assessment is an interesting one, right? And I know that you all pay for a lot of psychometricians, and you really do try to have external validation. So something to put on the list, Correct. Peter. The, um, first of all, when we um, designed the Open College at Kaplan University, we designed it without Title IV in mind. And so we charge $195 a month, and we charge $100 in assessment. Um, and we have a capstone course at the end where you have to bring your whole portfolio and show it, and we charge a regular fee for that. Um, but um, the reason, the, the cost to us as a, uh, in, uh, of, of going down the Title IV role, uh, road with all of the different um, elements that it entails uh, would have increased our cost and it slowed down our ability to go out to learners. It, it, it simply made no sense. And so the first decision we made was, we're not going to have any financial aid. Um, I think the other thing that um, I, I would argue, uh, which is not going after the subsidization issue at all, but we do also know about higher education that people who complete it live longer, are healthier, do better economically, and vote and participate in their communities more. So I'm just a dumb guy from Vermont. But I think those aren't bad things. Um, and I would. the final thing is that what's great about the competency argument, you know, d development is that assessment of learning is in and of itself a pedagogy. It can be a source of deep and powerful learning, as opposed to something you check at the end of a course. And so the ability to combine thinking about what you've learned with proving that you've learned it and can do something with it, I think is a rich area that was largely impenetrable until about five years ago. Is there anybody else who wants to touch on that? Well, I mean, obviously, we know that my ultimate solution would be to eliminate this I'm aid. For it. <laughs> it does always strike me, though, as, as uh, something that's not discussed that maybe could, could be done, which is that all of the impetus in our discussions on higher education and how you hold it accountable is we blame the institutions when they don't get the outcomes that we want. But it's ultimately the students who have to do the studying, who make the decisions about where they go to school, what they study. And we require almost nothing of them. I mean, if you, get, if you can get yourself a, um, a, a GED or a high school diploma, which isn't all that hard to do, and there used to be, of course, ability to benefit, too, you can get federal money. You can get federal money in essentially almost any amount that you need. Loans, but they're not Yeah, but loans. loans that say, look, whatever the college wants you to charge, we're going to give you access to that money. <laughs> Why is there no discussion of saying we need people who come to the federal government and ask for money to demonstrate in a rigorous way that they're prepared to go to college, that they're ready to do you know, hard college level work, and that they're going to pursue something that has some demand in the economy? Why do we blame the institutions for taking money from people when the federal government has said, here, have the money and, and use it for education? We have got to, if we're going to keep these programs, we can't just keep ignoring that the students are the ones who make the choices and have to do the work to do the learning. Neil, I, I have to Oops. butt in here. Uh, Sorry, and Barmack. Uh, 
Go ahead. This will be quick, but you're conflating the students again. You're talking about 18 to 24-year-olds. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about 39-year-olds. They do have learning. They can make decisions on their own. They are making good decisions about whether to borrow or not, and they do, many of them, need help. We're not talking about people who go to water parks because these folks don't have time for water parks. Well, one second. I don't want to take care of you. This is good. Yeah. I, I would really like to see the evidence that the only waste and poor decision making and consumption of things that are unnecessary or programs that don't uh, lead to a job is done by the traditional age students. I think that the, the evidence is so broad that it must include a lot of people beyond just those traditional age kids. They're probably not the ones who are consuming, who are going to the water parks, but they may well be going to institutions uh, to study things that aren't actually in demand, or they're going and they're saying, well, look, I'll try it. I'm not really committed You're to it. You're going to study at 2 o'clock in the morning for something that you don't expect to get a return on. No, but I do. I think that there are probably people who say, look, I know I need some sort of degree. I'll go pursue a degree at the place nearby me because it's the degree, the degree that really matters, regardless right. of what I get it in. Right. And I might not even really be motivated to do what would be necessary to get a degree, but I know I have to have it. So you could incentivize people, regardless of age, give them money, and they'll go to a school and say, okay, well, uh, you know, I should get a degree. I'm going to try it. Here's some money. I'm not going to give a lot of thought to it because I got the money from someone else. And, and it's very clear, I think, when you look at the data, that that problem exists and is very broad. Ramak, did you want to I jump in? quick points. And then One. if folks can think about questions, mm -hmm. I'm going to open Most, it up. Most uh, apropos the thing that started this tussle, mm, while it's true that uh, to pick an academic field, calculus is a highly canonical field so that if you, if you talk to mathematicians, uh, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find any who would contest what the elements of a Calculus One course ought to be. Uh, medieval philosophy isn't so canonical. Uh, English lit is not as canonical as it should be, from my perspective. So, so you have the challenge if you create this system of open-ended sort of competency-based uh, education of uh, dealing with outcomes uh, that are substantively contested. And that's the challenge, which, which automatically suggests some fields, maybe nursing, maybe welding, maybe calculus, maybe statistics, are highly susceptible to it. Maybe some other fields aren't. That's my one comment. But ap apropos Neil's, you know, I, I actually, I think at the level of causality, I think Neil and I are not that far off. I'm, I'm increasingly, as a guy who spent his whole career working for institutions, I'm sort of beginning to see the mess that these convoluted subsidies are, are creating. But I would point out that contrary to, to Neil's sort of tough guy, it's the damn student's fault, uh, I would say that the completion project has, significant, has been significantly hijacked by the permanent stakeholders, which is to say the institutions, because the mechanism by which you create awareness and caring and, and, and a certain level of focus is already at hand. It's called a lifetime of debt for which you're on the hook. Now, it's true that we have these remedies on the back end increasingly attempting to lighten the load, but the truth of the matter is that in terms of allocation of risk, most of the risk is on the student and on the taxpayer, and that institutions, if they're smart enough to manipulate stuff well enough to get outside the, the window of all or nothing, which is the cohort default rate, 
they're, they're, you know, they're basically off the hook, which is, again, the reason I don't know that I would trust any employer's opinion because the employer has no skin in the game. The employer can, can, can opine this is a good program, so whoops, so I was wrong. What happens to them? Nothing. It's the student and the taxpayer who carry the burden, and we need to do a much better job. I agree we need to truncate these subsidies and focus them on, on the neediest, but we also need to be cognizant of the fact that you have you know, candidly rent-seeking behavior of, of, of economic actors who are inserting themselves in a stream of subsidy that may be justifiable in the abstract in terms of do-goodism, but that may increasingly be siphoned off into other things that, that maybe taxpayers wouldn't directly subsidize. Well, with that, uh, we will open it up for some questions. So um, I think there are people with microphones, so I have some directions here that I need to read. Please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone, um, which is important even if you think we can hear you because there are people watching, so we want to be respectful to them. And if you could please announce your name and affiliation. So uh, the, uh, the woman in the front row. Thank you. Um, I'm Peggy Orchowski. I'm the congressional correspondent for the Hispanic Outlook on Higher Education, a magazine. Um, I have four family members who took between 10 and 20 years, including my son, to get a MA or to get a BA or BS degree. In all four cases, they all had great jobs that they had moved into without degrees. Um, they had been promoted. They loved their jobs. In order to continue on the promotion track, they had to get a degree. The job didn't care what the degree was. The job didn't care what they were learning. They didn't care. Two of them did it at uh, four-year colleges that had extension programs, and two did it through uh, internet. In no case did they have any relationship with the professors, any relationship with that college learning environment. And I think as we get enthusiastic about the MOOCs and all that, we're, we're leaving behind the, the teacher, the, the importance of that personal professor and mentor and, and the learning environment itself. I mean, I, granted, there's water parks, but hopefully <laughs> there's still a learning environment, too. So, you know, I think we have to be careful not to get too much one way. I don't see where the employer cares. It's a union card. It was a, it's a union card. Mm -hmm. Does anybody want mm -hmm. to address that? I'd love to take that. Um, one, I, I agree with you. As someone that never got a bachelor's degree, um, I, uh, I found that I was able to do fairly well, but that was thanks to the United States military. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that you are uh, going to increasingly find that you're going to have to have certain skill sets in order to get a job. You go to an uh, automobile dealer today and look at the work of the mechanic. Um, it's not about turning a wrench anymore. It's all about computers and reading computers and understanding the mathematics and, and the application of mathematics that goes into forms of computer science. The Times Union newspaper in Albany, New York, which I just visited, the press people all have to have months, if not years, of instruction in computers in order to operate the presses. So it's a case where whether it needs to be a degree or not, I think we're increasingly going to see argument about that. And that's why anybody in this room that doesn't think that gainful employment applies to them needs to take a closer look at that law because anybody offering a certificate program, for-profit or not-for-profit, is going to have to comply with it. 
because of the price of education, the degree cost, more and more people are going for stackable credentials. They're going for certificates. We're going to have to comply with that law, 900 pages of it. Uh, so, the yes, uh, gainful employment, the one that was re released last week. The idea that you don't have a, a learning community online says that you need to go back and take a look at really good online learning because we do create very cohesive groups of students. We do create relationships, and nobody's replacing the instructor. Right. Nobody's replacing the instructor. I would, and I would say, you know, I was involved in distance learning in undergraduate and graduate school. I sat in the back of lecture halls, um, and uh, I was as far away. I was as far away. Uh, you want? I mean. You know, make light of it. But the other thing is we know that I call it a warm heart. The research shows us that if you can do it, a blended environment where there is place and person as well as um, being away from it is better than all in the classroom or all online. Some people just can't do that. Um, and so I think the third point is that to, to elaborate on what John said, the, the fact of the matter is every person who comes to our schools lives a life. They have a life in a community. They know other people. They have a history, and they're looking for a future. It's only in the traditional model that we say, leave all that behind and come and live with us and place a disproportionate value on us and our place as opposed to legitimizing and respecting the history, uh, the context within which people live, whether where they come from, where they are, and where they want to go. So it's a, to me, it's it, it, I, I'm saying it a little differently than John, but I, I agree with. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm going to have to reframe, um, but I think there is that there are things that are possible now around diagnostics that are non-judgmental assessments, et cetera. Which and, and not to mention technology where you can create social communities where people talk to each other. Uh, we can identify 30 learners doing the same thing in the same county in northern New Jersey and introduce them to each other. Um, so it's different, but I, and it's not for everybody, nor our campuses, but to, to separate one from the other and raise one up at the expense of the other, I think, simply flies in the face of the disruption which this abundant information gives us, which is we aren't going to control how people decide to learn. We may control other elements, of it, but what our job is to do is to figure out how to get our arms around that learning, make it legitimate, make it good, and help them change their lives as a result of it. By the way, uh, Hispanic Outlook's a really good magazine. Uh, okay, I see some more questions um, in the front. Your name and affiliation. My name is Todd Wiggins. I'm a local jour journalist, uh, and I have a question specifically to Mr. Uh, Smith. I was very interested in, in your um, story about how you founded a community college in, in Vermont, and you described yourself as a community organizer, and then you pointed to the president as an example of a successful person who was considered, is still, and sometimes <laughs> to his uh, um, detriment, uh, labeled as a community versus a capitalist uh, or you know, an ongoing stronger leader that we need for the military, supposedly. So my question, though, what has been the result of the students that you worked with? Have you tracked some of their successes or failures uh, and relative to 
in a community college education relative to a traditional university education. And Peter, before you go, again, I just want to let everybody know we have about four minutes left. So. Well, I'll use my host prerogative to say we can go four minutes late. <laughs> and sorry, and for those of you who um, have to leave, feel free to. Uh, but know that there's lunch afterwards. Exactly. So you might not want to leave. Uh, in in Vermont, um, we didn't have the capacity to do what I would call good research. Mark Schneider sitting behind you, so I have to differentiate between what I might have called legitimate research to convince the legislature versus real research. But there, the issue was uh, on Main Street. It's just, this is, you know, for, God forbid, 45 years ago. Um, and we weren't going to survive unless uh, we made people satisfied. And the turning point was when one of the largest employers in the state made a speech at the Rotary Club in Montpelier, Vermont, after about three years and said... I'm employing some of these people, and they're, they're great additions to our workforce. So it was very much more human. Uh, we've got lots of data at Kaplan. I can, if you give me a card, I can get it for you. But the, again, I think the, 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 what we did there, um, the proposal I made several years ago, we give away the first three weeks for every new student. We don't charge. You have the right to leave. We have the right to ask you to leave if you're not, if you're not making progress. Um, and it has made a big difference in the profile of our student body in the fourth week, frankly. Uh, and it has made, and, and we've asked six people to leave for everyone who chose to leave. Um, and so it, there are things you can do. And that isn't because we're a proprietary, a for-profit school. Anybody could do that. And it would let people try something before, so they... So they know. Final thing, assessment of experiential learning. When you do that and you succeed, you complete it, you almost double your chances of graduating. Two and a half times. Two and a half times. Thank you. Uh, so there are these new practices have a huge impact on completion as well as being respectful of adults' background and experiences. Huh? We, we have asked students to leave who do not engage and we can measure their engagement in the online program. And if they don't engage, we're not going to take their money and we're not going to give them our time. Okay. Um, Mark? Mark Schneider. I'm the president of College Measures, a company that works with states to uh, liberate wage data. So um, I'm going to actually focus on the election, which I thought was one of the big uh, things in, in this discussion, which seemed to have disappeared while everybody does a little spiel about their own particular products. I'll do one about my product, but in, in all seriousness. Um, so gainful employment is probably dead, okay? And you know whether or not it was dead because of the gutting of the various metrics, but certainly with the election, the impact of gainful employment is the, the Congress is certainly going to try to weaken it, okay? But that doesn't mean that the concern for wage outcomes is dead, That's right. right? I mean, so the uh, actually at the at a competing cap event right now, James Caval is talking about the fact that the PERS is going to have, uh, you know, the rating system is going to have wage data in it. For example, I think the federal government is going to screw that up, but they're going to try to get they're going to try to get wage data. In the meantime, states are going ahead and and measuring the wage outcomes of, of students with my help, with the help of others. Um, so the question is, in the coming environment in which wages actually turn out to be maybe the ultimate arbiter of whether or not a program is working, 
especially if you're doing competency-based, what, uh, what is there except that students are being rewarded for the competencies that they have? So where are we and what, do, what does the election portend for the use of those data? Does it mean that the federal government is going to concentrate on them more or is that the gainful employment is dead so the, it'll show up in PERS but it'll have some informational but no regulatory comp, uh, uh, impact? Does it mean that we're going to punt to the states and ask the states to continue because many of them now have legislation that requires the measurement of wage outcomes. So is the real debate now going to be, do we measure short-term, mid-term, long-term? Do we adjust for the income and characteristics of the students? Do we, uh, how do we standardize for differences in the, in, you know, if you, if you graduate in 2009, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have terrible wages, no matter, almost no matter what you did. If you graduate, hopefully in 2015, you're going to be way, way better off. And if you, if you work in uh, a state that I work with in, in Florida, if you, graduate from a school in the panhandle, you're going to do terribly compared to a, a student that graduates in Miami-Dade. So how do you, you know, are, I mean, are these just trivial measurement problems? But if we're really betting on competency and, and wage outcomes as the measure of, of quality, then what do we do next? Can I, can I just address that a little bit? I mean, I think you're you're assuming a level of readiness and agreement that there may not be yet at the federal level. And I think rhetorically, there's certainly a lot of agreement that we need you know, that higher ed needs to be accountable and that we need either higher ed needs to be accountable or consumers need more information, right? And certainly about wage data. And that's one that everybody talks about, right, left, House, Senate. But when push comes to shove, when it comes to legislation that would forget even making them accountable for it, but actually make uh, legislation that would enable these data to be revealed to the world, <laughs> to policymakers, there's still resistance. I mean, so, and again, I think that's in large part because certain institutions, not all, I mean, you know this certainly as well as I do, but there's there's a certain group of institutions, mostly the private, uh, not-for-profit institutions that have fought really hard to make sure that the federal government can't get better wage data. So again, so there's just getting it is still a political challenge, let alone what to do with it and others. And then we have about two minutes. I want to just say quickly that... <laughs> Uh, the cost of getting that data is something we have to be concerned about as well. One of the things relative to the election that, that I wanted to comment on was is the fact that with Alexander uh, coming in as, as, as hopefully the, the chair of the Senate, he wants to simplify. He, he's talked about going back and, and starting all over with the Higher Ed Act. Uh, there's much more alignment today between the House and the Senate if with this election and hopefully we can get rid of some of the extremely expensive regulation that's taken place. Since 2008, Terry Hartle over at ACE estimates we've had more than 200 new rules and regulations imposed on higher education. Every one of those has had to be rid. Every one of those has had to have uh, a determination made as to whether or not it applies, uh, what resources are going to be needed for compliance, and then there has to be a reporting requirement. There was reference made by Peter to, to Sarah and the state authorization issue. It cost my institution $330,000 a year to comply with that law. It will cost us $200,000 to comply with gainful employment. That's a half a million dollars for one institution. If you multiply that by the 500,000, or I'm sorry, the 5,000 or so accredited institutions, we get to whatever Dirksen used to call real money. 
Uh, we need to reduce the amount of unnecessary regulation. Contrary to the president's claims, we've reduced access by taking many online learners, not just the for-profits, but from very well-respected institutions, not willing to comply with all of the reporting requirements, we've taken them out of the picture in many states. We've added to the cost of, of education because we've got no place to go but tuition uh, to pass on these this 500000 in new cost that we've been saddled with. It's no wonder that at a time when we're reducing enrollment, actual enrollment's falling, not growing, but yet employment in the administrative side is increasing, and the faculty are quick to point to that. Well, it all has to do with regulatory compliance and risk management. And Mark, wait, Mark. <laughs> we, we will have lunch after this. <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty cheap. Okay, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. So we would love to take this conversation offline so that everybody else can uh, enjoy lunch and use the facilities. Let me tell you where they are. If you go up the spiral staircase to the second floor, you will see food. And if you look for the yellow wall, you will see facilities. So thank you very much for enjoying us. Clearly, uh, Congress is going to have its hands full in trying to figure out what to do next with higher education. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Bill. Yeah.